Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, dear listener. It's Monica Rogers with the Revelation Project Podcast. Today, my guest is Sean Padraig O'Donohue, and the name of our episode is the same as his book, Courting the Wild Queen. I came across Sean's work on my way to Scotland. I needed a Kindle book, and what can I say? It spoke to me. And I'm so glad it did because it really became the portal for me into a reimagining of my own relationship with the living world around me. I came to understand what animism is at a deeper level and basically broke the habit of being human, which is something that we talk about in this episode. There's so many beautiful themes running throughout this episode, and I know that you're going to love it. So I'm going to give you a little bit more background on him in a moment. But first, I want to make a couple of announcements. One is that I'm so proud to announce that I'll be opening registration for another sisterhood circle happening this summer called the Summer of Yes, and I'll be co-leading with Libby Bunton. And I cannot wait because it's all about unbecoming from scarcity and limiting beliefs and rushing. And it's all about saying yes to more pleasure, rest, relaxation, space. It's about saying yes to our bodies, yes to our feelings, yes to our pleasure. And it's I'm just like, I'm speechless because we just completed a six month circle of sisterhood with live coaching, teachings, tools, and practices of embodied feminine leadership. And it was so successful that we're doing it again, but we're doing a shorter version of it and we're running it just this summer. So again, it's called the Summer of Yes. For those of you that have been waiting for this announcement because you've been wanting to join the next Sisterhood Circle, you can do that by going to signup.jointherevelation.com slash unbecoming. More on Sean Padraig O'Donohue. He's an herbalist, writer, and teacher, and he's an initiated priest in two traditions. He lives in the mountains of Western Maine. His approach to healing weaves together the insights of traditional Western herbalism and contemporary science. He regards physical, spiritual, and emotional healing as deeply intertwined. He grew up near Boston, a short distance from where his great-grandparents first landed when they arrived from Ireland. Since childhood, he's been an avid student of Irish history and folklore. He graduated from Dartmouth College in 1996 with a degree in English literature and creative writing. And a final note before we begin and say hello to Sean is that I'm so grateful for all of you. I'm so grateful for the way that you share. I'm so grateful for your generous listening. I'm so grateful for your reviews on Apple podcasts. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's honestly astonishing to me that we are in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. I could not have made it this far without you. And so I do not take your listening for granted. I know how many distractions are out there. I know how many choices you have. So I'm absolutely honored that you spend your time with me. And it's my deep intention to create a more connected community in this next year. And so thank you again. For those of you that have not yet shared, please, please consider sharing this episode or any of the episodes with your friends and family members. And thank you. If For those of you that have not yet left a review on Apple Podcasts, I really, those reviews mean the world to me. They help me to really engage at a different level. They root me on, if that makes any sense. They explode my heart open every time I read a new review. And it's how other people decide if they are wanting to spend the time to listen. So for those of you that have not yet done so, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, and so now here we go. Let's dive into this beautiful, incredible conversation about what it is to court the wild queen with Sean Padraig O'Donoghue. Hi, Sean. Hello. Thank you so much. So grateful for this invitation. Well, I loved your book, and I was wondering if you know I had read the right bio for you there because I had read Courting the Wild Queen, and... You ha- and so I, I was reading that as you have, it's called an upcoming book tentatively titled The Silver Branch, but you've got another one in the works is what I'm realizing. Is that correct? Well, The Silver Branch is a manuscript that I just finished. It's kind of a reincarnation of my first book with allowed to be freer and more fluid. And so I just got that into the publisher in February, and we're in the whole navigating how we'll come into the world place. Oh, I love that for you. Congratulations. That is exciting. Thank you. Well, I I would love to just really start with a little bit of background, because in reading your work, I'm just fascinated by who you might have been as a child. And I wondered if you could start there with just kind of how you grew up a little bit and give us a little bit of background. Absolutely. So I grew up in northeastern Massachusetts, a bit north of Boston, a bit north of where my great-grandparents had landed when they came from Ireland. And um, I was at the edge of the suburbs. There was still enough forest around, and there was the swamp behind the house where the skunk cabbage lived that became one of my great sanctuaries. And I was very confused about the world I was born into, and the world I was born into was very confused about me. (laughs) (laughs) So I had, you know, a profound sense of disconnection from the time and place where I was. Also a profound sense of disconnection from my body that was shaped by 
struggles with asthma and with physical coordination as a very young child. That really, together with my own way of turning Catholic theology around in my head and my heart sort of made me at war with my body. Mm. But the places where I felt at home were in that swamp and forest behind the house and in stories of distant times and places and especially of my ancestors. So this was, you know, I was born in 74, so late 70s, early 80s, nobody had much of a framework for understanding exactly what was going on for me, why there were some areas where what seemed easy for other people, like tying shoes, was almost impossible for me. And yet, there I was as a young child seeing these deep patterns in history. And, you know, everybody did their best. And I went to all manner of specialists trying to figure out my own peculiar brain, but they didn't really have the language and framework for understanding that I'm autistic, which there were times when I wished I had known that earlier in life. And I think there are ways that would have been a blessing, but at the same time, our neurobiology as autistic people is still very misunderstood. And the things that tend to happen when you're identified early in life as autistic would not have been things that would have served my being. And so I've come to, I've come to have a reluctant gratitude for, <laughs> for the confusion. <laughs> yes. Yes. To reluctant gratitude. It's like the disguised gift in some ways, right? Where, where, yeah, I think we all have our own story of kind of hindsight being twenty twenty, where we both are dismayed, but also grateful. You know that there there's that paradox right away. You know that that came up when when we chose our card today, which was Chiron. And I love that your first mentor, you know, had had said, or or one of your friends or teachers had said, Chiron is the first mentor, right? Yes, uh, that's the wonderful uh, astrologer Caroline Casey, who has become a dear friend over the past few years and has such amazing insights about. This is what the sky story tells to us on Earth. Yeah, the sky clock, the sky story. There's, yeah, the original story. The, and, and how those influences do shape us. And depending, you know, on where we're born and who we're born of, that we it really are all tapestries or threads that are weaved into the tapestry of our story that end up making us who we are. Yes. Even the title of your book, I found moving. And maybe it's because my whole life, all I ever heard, whether it was true or not, was him 
his him. Mm. His him. Whatever version of that. It was yeah. all of our his story books, all of our school books, all of the ways that it felt like anything that ever mattered was in the name of his, he, him. And so when I saw the title of your book, Courting the Wild Queen, I was immediately attracted to it because the archetype of the queen is something that I've really been exploring these last few years. Mm-hmm. And then you put the words courting, which have so many different meanings to different people, and wild. And I was like, okay, I think these might be three of my favorite words ever <laughs> in the title of your book. So, and I know that you have other beautiful works, but that is the one that, you know, I just really gravitated towards immediately. And I wondered if you could tell me and my listener about the title of that book and about its meaning to you. Absolutely. And it really is my most intimate work, both the work that's both the writing that's dearest to me, but also the writing that in some ways was most terrifying to put out into the world because both because of the way that it reveals me and my way of being in the world, but also because when there's something so deeply precious and so deeply beloved, there are always the questions of how will this be received in the world and am I doing true service to the visions and the experiences that have been shared. And so it really comes to an understanding of sovereignty in the very, very old sense. And actually, if I may, I might read a passage that speaks to that. Yeah, please. In the old stories, the king is wedded to the land, and sovereignty is a gift to land, bestows and withdraws at will. This suggests a very different notion of sovereignty than that which tends to be bandied about in the dominant culture today. People now tend to speak of sovereignty as being individual and personal, our right to control our own bodies and lives. But the individual rational actor is an invention of capitalism, a concept that severs our connections to land and community. In reality, our bodies and our minds are ecologies, communities of myriad beings coming together and giving rise to a more or less shared consciousness and are completely interdependent with human, the humans and other than humans who share our landscape. Just as a god might be the mind that arises from a forest, a river, a planet, or a cluster of galaxies, so too is each person's consciousness a collective consciousness born of the matter and energy that makes up beings. 
To be sovereign is to be in alignment, to be self-possessed, which inherently means to be conscious of the ecological selves we are members of, in the same way that our individual neurons are members of a brain, a nervous system, a neuroendocrine emergent self-regulating feedback loop, a human body, a family, a community, a species, an ecology, a landscape, a planet, a solar system, a galaxy, a universe, and the body of God herself. And so, a lot of this was a quest for, was a personal quest for understanding how to be alive in this world in a way that really honored the life of this world. In particular, how to step into and embody a masculinity that was older than and different than what I had seen in the world that I lived in. And voices began coming very strongly from my Irish ancestors speaking of the old way, which was that, you know, the king was not a monarch or a ruler. The Irish word re, probably king is the English translation, but it means something different and older. It's related to the Sanskrit word rig, which means shining one. And the king was not the maker of the law. The law existed as a song that was passed from generation to generation. Nor was the king the maker of decisions. Those were made at an assembly of the people. But the king was the one who wedded the living spirit of the land herself, was understood not in the abstract, but as it was understood as a true marriage to the land. And that life was an offering to the land who offered life back in return and was that point of weaving the mind of the community together and weaving and then intertwining that with the living spirit of the land. And I've learned more recently uh, that... Um, the Irish, Irish word sirsha, which means free, uh, corresponds to um, an old concept of whether a person w- was seer or not. Depended what was a matter of a person reciting their genealogy, going back to the goddess of the land, and that to be free was to know the way in which your people arose from the land. And of course, that's a broken lineage for almost everyone, including me. I know who my people were going back to the 1700s, and I know who their ancestors were before about 1500, but there are 200 years of missing stories of stolen genealogies. And... So the only way to become free when that genealogy is lost under the concept of the old law is to come into 
your own new relation with the living land. There's so much beauty in everything that you shared. And I love that you had this moment where you were redefining what it is to be alive in this world in a way that honored it. And also that that invited you into exploring a different kind of masculinity. And that that message came through your lineage, your ancestors. You know, that that was inspired through this inquiry. You know, and I often look at inquiry in itself as this contemplative prayer that allows those voices to reach us. Yes. Yeah. And and what a beautiful history, you know, of the mm-hmm. king and the land and what that was really about. And and unpacking that a little bit more I think about our meditation, you know, before we started and Mother Earth as the great goddess as this yeah. fertile, generative, generous, loving, tempestuous, but mm-hmm. all of the ways that the courting of the land is the wild queen, right? She is yeah. the wild queen. Yes. Yeah, and I read something that stuck out to me. I mean, so many things in your book, but one was the wild has its own etiquette of consent. Yes. And I find that to be such an interesting word that you used, consent. So, would you talk more about that? Well, we really break the word down. It's feeling together. And so, we have all these... So we have the concept of the surface of the who we think we are being in verbal conversation with who somebody else thinks that they are. And my own, I think so much confusion uh, comes from when we go only to that level. And we take ourselves and each other just at the spoken word. Mm -hmm. 
And if we are in a disconnected and dissociated place, then we only hear what's happening at the surface and we don't understand how much of a person's being is showing up for that discussion. And I think about the places I have caused hurt and the places that I have been hurt and about how much that's been about only when there's only that awareness. And I'm so glad that we've come to that awareness after not having had that awareness for a long time, uh, for a long time in the culture, but we're only at that awareness. We can miss something deeper and more fundamental. And that also can lead to all kinds of confusions and spiralings in our stories and each other's stories. And But when we are really at that place of feeling together of presence, then we can feel what goes all the way to the root of the being. And you know, Isle Royale in, uh, in Michigan is a place where the, where biologists have been able to observe, uh, the interaction between mooses and wolves for a very, very long time because they're large populations of both on this very small place. And they've been able to set up the cameras to record the interactions. And one thing that they see is that, you know, it, when there is that conversation, that embodied conversation between the moose and the wolf that passes silently, where sometimes the moose says, yes, I'm tired, I surrender. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the moose says, no not today, and the wolf walks away. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the moose says, chase me. Yeah, that there's this inherent language that is older than words, that is that are these nuances, subtleties, shifts that that it's that all of that is can be observed intuited understood but not from a place of words and this kind of brings us into this conversation about animism and how disconnected we are if we if kind of our only experience is the ones of this compartmentalized logical visual like i can see it i can feel it and therefore it's real kind of 
way of being in the world that is so isolating and limiting and discounts all of these other languages, all of these other ways of being that are just as valid, if not more so. Yeah. And, and anything you want to add to that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the great paradoxes um, is that we have this concept of identity and we think we are this identity. And really this identity is this continuing story that we weave in order to give coherence to our movement in the human social world. And it's not that that doesn't serve its function, but when we allow that to be all that we think that we are, then that's a form of dissociation. I mean, identity is a story is an idea, and it's an idea that in many ways falls under what my late friend Stephen Buhner called dissociated mentation of the cultural way that emerged when we severed from the land that made us privilege that left frontal cortex of the brain and its rational ability to map things. But in order to actually experience who we are, we have to, to some extent, experience a sacrifice, a shattering of identity mm-hmm. and go in order to reach the layers that are deeper below it. The great Irish animist writer John Moriarty spoke about the other world well that all the waters arise from. And he said, it was at Kanla's other world well that I learned that being human is a habit that can be broken. <laughs> and then he spoke about when we go into that deep place, who is it that we consent to be dreamed by? And when we let our own identities and other stories of our identities become what we are being dreamed by, we get into very tangled and jagged places. But when we remember that we are the dream of our oldest ancestors, not all of whom are human, and that we are the dream of the land itself, and we come into relation with the living world of other beings of this time and of other times. And also we are the dream of the future, like those who are our descendants, whether they are biological descendants or the descendants of the echoes of our heartbeats somewhere in the future. They are telling the stories of how we made it through this time so that they could exist. And they are dreaming us forward too. So, going into that web in which we no longer allow ourselves to be defined just by persona, just by identity, but, and instead, the 
late fantasy novelist Terry Pratchett has this has this wonderful uh, passage where he talks about the young witch Tiffany A. King out walking on the land, and about how every morning she would go out, and she would remind the land who it was, and the land would remind her who she was. And so that mutual dreaming and uh, choosing that who we consent to be dreamed by is is those who are outside the cultural contexts of the tangles we've found ourselves in is what allows us to become our emergent selves as part of a living ecology. Mm. Yeah, so beautiful. I mean, I love the earlier quote that you said about the gentleman who said, you know, being human is a habit we can break, something to that extent. And yeah, what I really hear in so much of what you're saying is that it's actually in the unbecoming, you know, that that we are able to reconnect and all the rewords come in, you know, reunite, yeah. reclaim, reimagine, you know, that these are, that the way for each of us is in this what we would typically call a very unbecoming process, you know, on the surface, where it it may look messy and wild and untamed. But that is, in fact, where we find this relatedness to ourselves and to the world. How does a summer of yes sound to you? Yes to your body. Yes to joy. Yes to pleasure. Yes to sisterhood. Yes to rest and relaxation. Yes, yes, yes. This is about finding your authentic pace in a hectic world that keeps you in various states of depletion and self-abandonment. You might be thinking, how? I have work to do. Or, Summer flies by so fast as it is. And yes, it's true. And we're unbecoming from scarcity and rushing, from hating on ourselves and depriving ourselves of pleasure, space, and time. By saying yes this summer, it's about revealing a new way of being in relationship to yourself and to the world. It's about learning the truth of the magic of being full of yourself of having your cake and eating it too. And yes, it is possible. Here are a few testimonies of women who recently completed Unbecoming. Kristen says, Embarking on the journey of Unbecoming has transformed my life. I've grown immensely in so many ways, in my business leadership, my relationship with my husband, children, and friends, and in my efforts to build community. Living my truth and knowing how to follow my intuition has led me to live with joy and pleasure. Elissa shares, Thank you for being here as I found my way back home to myself, for seeing me when I wasn't able to, 
Thank you for witnessing me in my vulnerability and my angst, my pain and my confusion, and for showing me where to find what I've been seeking within myself. I am forever changed. And finally, Trish said, Unbecoming created space, which allowed me to support and nourish the parts of me I had cast aside for so long. I've begun dropping limiting beliefs I've had about myself for years. The circle of sisterhood is powerful, raw, wild, and made of love. So I have a question for you. Are you in for the summer of yes? Apply now by going to signup.jointherevelation.com slash unbecoming. That's signup.jointherevelation.com slash unbecoming. Apply now. We begin June 6th, and we can't wait to welcome you into the circle of sisterhood. Will you say yes to you? I loved to, I kind of grabbed this phrase that was in your writing. Her kiss awakens the memory of another way of being. And that in, in a way, well, in all ways, we are alienated from our own bodies. We have this body armoring that actually opens back through pleasure. And so I find it so beautiful, again, that in this case, the queen is the metaphor for the land, and the kiss becomes this spellbreaker, you know, that allows us to disarm. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I really was thinking about that kiss being the power that breaks the spell and liberates and restores what you call this innate wild empathy. And it's this innate wild empathy that guides us to live in this place of reciprocity with the earth. Yeah. Yes. And the queen is once that metaphor and also not metaphor at all. Yeah. Because it's only when we come to her as herself and recognize and experience her just as viscerally and sensually as we would experience a human lover that that way opens and it's simultaneously the unmaking and the remaking and I think about that passage from Rumi about the price of this kiss is your life mm. and about how quickly we go to thinking, oh, the price of this kiss is your death. It's like, well, that's a death of a story. But it's actually, no, the price is your life that once you accept that invitation and enter into that transformation, nothing is ever the same. Yeah. It's like almost, it's such a different, I say different, it's very not different for you, but I'm 
I'm experiencing it as like such a different way of thinking that mm. I find that my I've I've said this before. I was speaking in an episode with a woman by the name of Akila Richards who does this work of unschooling as liberation work. And I was explaining to her what it feels like to kind of reach the end, almost like there's this cliff where my neural pathways are no longer connected, like they're, they're needing to now build a bridge because I have, because somewhere along the line, that bridge <laughs> was, was dissected, was disconnected, was disassociated. And it, I believe it's the bridge between my head and my heart. But I kind of also imagine it in my brain as kind of these places where the neural pathways are like reaching out into the void, you know, like, yeah. are you there? You know, is there anybody out there? And it, because it's, it feels like this new way of thinking such that I'm brought into this place of this, there is no language in this place, and isn't this beautiful? And so I, I find myself speechless, you know, because it almost dishonors <laughs> to put language around it. And actually, you go on to say that the language of civilization is useless while navigating the other world landscapes. And that's what I find, you know, and even as I'm in this conversation with you, that there's a portion that we can be pointing to and talking about, but there's this experience that is the invitation for each of my listeners, for myself, for you, that is as intimate and as unique as we are with the queen. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that speaking about those neural pathways reaching it, that is also, that is a literal truth that, you know, our neural path, our brains are physically reorganizing in every moment to respond to what we have allowed ourselves to experience. And when we drop the veil that's obscured certain levels of reality, there is a remaking that becomes necessary. But it's also exactly what we emerge to do if we look at the biology of our own consciousness. It's a variation, the mycorrhizal webs that form the mind of a forest to the mind of a field but where life decided what happens if we come in into an individual body and have a forest contained within our cranium and then what happens if part of that if a part of that becomes self-aware and experiences itself as separate and if we look at well how that played out in traditional societies that became a recognition that we are the life of the world itself come into being to experience 
itself through all of its senses in a new and unique way. Mm. But somewhere along the line, historically, and we can place that at different places, but, you know, one of the major sufferings came with the rise of capitalism and the separation of people from land in the 1600s that forced people to become redefined in a more individual way. And now here we are, 600 years later, uh, coming to, or, or not 600 more, however many hundred years later, uh, <laughs> coming to the limits of that. And when we come to limits of that, that we, we suddenly end up looping back. And so as we reach out for that connection, it's actually the connection beyond what's contained in our cranium. But in order to get there, what actually biologically exists in our brains needs to be reorganized. Yes, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's the way of it, yes. It, it also occurs to me that... Uh, there's this kind of interesting pattern emerging as I'm sitting here speaking to you that you talk about kind of the apple of the other world, right? And yeah. I was someone who bit the apple of the story of the civilized world first, right? And so therefore the fruit of these worlds are are always offered and so it's it's kind of this again for me this invitation to see how you know like being willing to eat of the fruit from a different tree is also an option you know, that I yeah. I have this power in my own sovereignty to eat the fruit of another story that I wish to know more about, right? And to yeah. reframe my own experience and my own life from. And also, as we kind of spoke about before, to begin an inquiry that allows for some of these other languages, other voices to reach us from other realms, right? To take us deeper into the mystery. Because the thing that I've really noticed is this insistence in this particular world on certainty. Yes. And how boring that has become. Truly, yes. And, you know, it's really interesting watching in this particular cultural moment. We have the reemergence and the curiosity with psychedelics, which are medicines that have the power to really unravel identity and create places of remaking and to repattern our nervous systems. And yet, that's 
in some ways, you know, there are some ways in which the beings who these molecules emerged from are available to be our guides in this. And you know, my late friend Stephen Buhner would often remind me that these are molecules and beings far older than we are, and that other species engaged in this entering into the dreaming too. But on the other hand, when we're broken open in that way, what we, re- what we become depends on what we are orienting toward. Become depends on who we are consenting to be dreamed by. And there is a great peril when we try to make these experiences too domesticated mm-hmm. that, and try to shape them in predictable ways to say, I want to be changed in this way, and I'm going to hire somebody to create this experience that I will be changed in exactly that way that we then become changed to another human agenda rather than reawakened into the fullness of who we are. Or in one of the, the gifts these medicines have is attuning us to the flow of information and intelligence in a complex system. And for most of human history, that's been simply the intelligence of life itself, because that's been the strongest, most fluid, most complex system in our presence. So we've oriented on it and imprinted on it like a baby bird Mm. imprints on its mother. But now that we are in this era where there are global human information systems of technology and global economic systems, there can be the imprinting on those instead or the imprinting on ideology that's like those horrible experiments where they taught baby birds to think that a basketball was their mother. Yes, those horrible experiments because it's it's so, like it speaks to me of this poverty, of this, of this hungering, even in this reality as it's kind yeah. of careening toward this, I notice how many of us are still searching for our mothers. Yeah. <laughs> like in a very true way that there was this severance that happened a long time ago that you know we talked about the archetype of the queen but this archetype of the mother is also so profoundly hungered for and it's she who is fully sovereign like the queen in her full bloom and in in knowledge of her own sufficiency and it's in her rootedness her rooted awareness and in her allowing of her all of her parts including these wild untamed uncivilized parts of herself that we feel safe because she knows who she is, you know? And many of us were raised by patriarchalized mothers who were severed from their knowing of their own sovereignty 
And so here we are out searching. And you're right, it won't be before long that we're, you know, if we continue along this track, I don't even want to imagine, but it's like, are you my mother? And we're looking in a robot's face. Yeah. Yeah, versus the actual mother who has been here like the oracle of the obvious. And culturally, of course, we have the idealized version of what we think a mother is supposed to be and what that's supposed to be about. But so much of actual motherhood is deeply culturally forbidden. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And and even in the in the you know positive countercultural attempts to change that, it's still kind of kind of like well, we get the the woman in perfect physical health who has the perfect supportive community. It has all the financial resources, and we get get that upheld as what a mother should be. And yes, everybody should every mother should have access to those realities. But the who, the way someone actually mothers in the reality that shows up is the true measure of what motherhood is. And we would make that messiness invisible. That's right. I mean even just, you know, not to take this conversation too much in a different direction, but I'm even thinking as you're speaking of how we've industrialized childbirth and in those ways, and that in itself is its own messy, wild, necessary experience. And so, yes, to all of <laughs> yes, to this entire conversation and more. I wonder, John, if you could, you know, just briefly touch on your understanding of animism and why, you know, this kind of leads us into an invitation about remembering our birthright to be in communication with the wildlife around us and how you might guide our listener into allowing more of that. Because I think it's, it is in this allowing versus kind of this, it's, it's like in the disarming, it's it, that, that that kind of starts to happen. And so whichever way you want to take that, you're welcome to, but I'd love to kind of bring that in. Yeah. And so animism is the understanding that the world itself is alive. And that we are not more than other beings are in this world in the way that our culture has taught us to be. Nor are we less than in the way that our shame and guilt at looking at what our civilization has done often makes us think. And I actually think, you know, one of the great dangers is in that demonization of human nature 
And in part, that serves to erase the memory that there are other ways of being human. When we say humans have always been this way, humans have always been that way, uh, so often it's not true. So often we're saying things that have only been true of particular groups of people for a few centuries mm-hmm. in a vast, vast history of this world. It's the recognition when we are encountering other than human beings that, um, as my friend Julie McIntyre says, it's their experience too. Mm. And there is intelligence and presence in life on both ends of that. Yeah. And it really is about building relationship. And one part of that building relationship is consistency and time showing up. I often will ask someone to find the one tree that they see every day in their daily world that speaks to them at some level and make a practice of spending a few moments each day with that tree. And if you want to take that experience a bit deeper, a bedrock practice for me is one that Stephen and Julie taught to me, which is we're learning to work with our heart as an organ of perception, which is something we all innately have the capacity to do. And it begins with just bringing your attention to your heartbeat and not to the thought of your heartbeat, but to actually feeling your heart beating. And then remembering that your heart has beat for you in every moment of your life without needing your needing to think, without your needing to ask, playing out the rhythms of every moment, the rhythms of joy and the rhythms of sorrow. And then just allowing gratitude to arise for that and stay with that. And then once you've learned to anchor in that place, allowing the awareness to extend outward from that place, to feel the presence of another being. And this is the oldest way people have learned from the world. It's the oldest conversation that we're part of. And when we truly make this a practice, when we truly do this again and again over time, it really begins to change everything. And there's also the level of reciprocity that becomes important, both in a grand sense of once we are in relation with another being, we take on a responsibility for being part of protecting that other being's life and nourishing that other being's life. And also at the level of the ritual practice of bringing gifts to a tree, to a stone, to a lake, And on one level, thank you is a gift. But on another level, 
when we actually physically enact giving something precious to another living being, it changes the way we're showing up in a way that changes how that being experiences us. Mm. So, I don't know if the Hawthorne knows that it's whiskey and honey and milk that I'm bringing to it. But I know that the Hawthorne knows the way that I'm coming when I'm bringing whiskey and honey and milk and calling it by its name in Irish. Mm. That is different than if I showed up with Mountain Dew and said, hey, yo, Hawthorne, how's it going? <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, maybe that maybe that would be received too, but it would be received differently. And so there may or may not be something about the actual words and the actual physical material, but there is something about the way that I'm coming that makes my presence a different kind of gift. Mm. And I can't just go through the motions and say, well, I'm, I'm, let's pretend this is whiskey. No, because my being knows at a layer deeper than language and words what I'm actually bringing. And so that changes how I show up. I mean, it, it really is so simple and yet so profound. And it is so true. I mean, we can... We can relate to this if we think of an experience between humans, but we don't think about it as it relates to what we've thought of as inanimate beings. Right. And so therein lies that change of perception or that opening to perceiving from a different more open and connected place of allowing for there to be the potential and the possibility of an exchange. And, and if we're not even open to the possibility, it would otherwise not happen. I had an experience recently Sean, that I'll share with you and my listener that I was really agitated one day and a voice kept coming, go outside, go outside, go outside. And so I finally reluctantly listened, got my running shoes on and just I started walking the perimeter of my neighborhood and when I moved here 14 years ago, there was this lore that there was some path that led to some nature preserve, that it was right near my neighborhood. I've walked this neighborhood, and I've walked this neighborhood, and I've walked this neighborhood. And I just decided that whoever said that was wrong, that there was no, that they must mean some other territory or neighborhood. So I'm walking around and suddenly this woman just comes out of nowhere. It was literally like a scene out of Alice in Wonderland. Like, you know, how the rabbit appears and is looking yeah. at his watch. And she looks at me and I look at her and I then she continues kind of along her way. Now she's come out the path 
and onto the road. And I look and I would have never considered it a path because it's going between these two houses. So I just follow where she, and it opens up into this nature preserve that is literally like this wonderland right in my backyard. For 14 years, I have never seen it. And as I walk along this path, I realize there are streams and there's this little reservoir and there are all of these even little, um, you know, monuments and temples and fairy houses that have been built Mm. along the way. And then I arrive around this one area and there's this tree you know, and I hear the voice again, ah, you came. Mm. And I thought, oh, you you called me here. Thank you. You know, like, I was so moved and I went up to her and I put my hands on her and I knelt and I was just so completely filled with this sense of like, Gratitude and horror, horror at my arrogance, at the audacity to think ever that there was a time in my life that I didn't believe that this kind of communication was possible. And this other deep gratitude and awe that I was being shown that there is, there's so much more that I, you know, if I, if I am willing yeah. to be uncertain, if I am willing to not know it all, yeah. if I am willing to unbecome from everything that I have been taught was becoming, was real, yeah. And you know, horror is so interesting because it's so... Interesting the degree to which we will turn that inward and say, how could I not have seen this? How could I have allowed myself to be fooled? But, you know, if you met someone who had spent their entire childhood in a compound of a religious cult, yes, then, then you, you would not expect them to know anything from outside that. In the same way, we've spent our whole lifetimes in this culture and we've had this culture <laughs> yes. yes and we've been programmed in this particular way and if anything that says something really beautiful about our own being that no matter how much we are indoctrinated that memory will still rise up and rise up in the most unexpected people in the most unexpected places in the most unexpected ways i love that thank you for that and in that moment i just saw those neural pathways meeting Mm. you know that across that chasm like in that remembering oh my gosh thank you for such a beautiful like soul stirring conversation truly i have just deeply loved your 
offerings through your writing. And I'm so happy to hear that you have another one on the horizon. I can't wait to dive into your other works that I have not yet read. And I wanted to just ask you one last question, which is, what does the word revelation or the experience of revelation mean to you? That's a wonderful question. Um, So, I'm brought back to a moment on a ferry from from the mainland out to Nishmore, one of the Aran Islands. And the skipper of the boat was wandering around and trying to tell people things, and most people were just sort of rolling their eyes and looking the other way. And I, but he noticed me sort of listening to all the parts of the conversations. And then when we, when the ship pulled into the dock, as I was walking off the boat, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, history on this island exists in layers. Walk to Donangus and you will understand. And so I spent that day walking across the island to this Iron Age stone fort dedicated to Angus, the god of love. And what I found as I walked was that with each step, I was like here sinking into a deeper layer. And so to me, revelation is about those layers of being, those layers of history. It's about what happens when we look past the layer that we are used to and discover that there's so much more that exists that the mythic is like the layer of soil beneath our feet and what's been hidden from us can be seen and it's so interesting because of course in the greek word apocalypse refers to revelation and in this culture we've been so programmed to think there's only one level of reality that if that level of reality starts to crack then we think of it in apocalyptic terms (laughs) but the true apocalypse is just the revelation it's just the remembering yeah i'm so grateful for your work and inviting people to experience that and i'm so grateful for this co-creation and invitation today me too thank you so much sean really it's just been a total honor and i'm actually a little bit in tears at the moment which is a welcome thing because i love you know having a conversation that to me kind of just occurs from nowhere and ends up just feeling profoundly beautiful and inspiring and fulfilling and so thank you for being my partner in that and and thank you to my listener you know, for your generosity of spirit, for continuing to listen, because 
I think in the listening, and I think of that gentleman who saw you listening. Yeah. It was through the listening and the noticing of the listening that a gem was given. Yeah. You know, and it's the gems when we listen that if we then, you know, are willing to recognize them as gems and follow them, that more will always be revealed. Yes. Yeah. So thank you to my listener as well. And I'll be sure to put all of Sean's links in the show notes. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.